Thank you. My name's Carolyn. I serve as the ministry assistant here at the Shawnee campus. It's so good to be with you this morning. Thank you for joining us today. If you are new, there are green hello cards in the chair back pockets in front of you. We'd love the chance to get to meet you, learn your name, hear a little bit about you. You can fill out one of the green cards and hand it to someone wearing a blue lanyard or feel free to put it in the basket at the table by the hello wall. Also, there are blue prayer cards in front of you. As a staff, we pray for you for this campus weekly, and if there's any way we can pray for you specifically, we would love to get to do that. You can use the blue prayer card for that, and you can put that in the tithes and offering box against the wall. And also, if you came prepared this morning to worship through giving, you can also put that in the box on the wall, or there's ways to give online as well. I have a couple announcements this morning. The first one, again, we just wanted to give you a reminder that this evening's Christmas pageant has been canceled. We're still so bummed, but we knew this was just the right decision right now with so much sickness and COVID numbers on the rise. So let's just be hoping for next year this can ha happen, and that gives us a year to recruit more volunteers to help as well. Um, and then next announcement is something very exciting coming up on January 8th. We're having an event called Welcoming the Stranger with Jenny Yang. Um, Jenny is the Senior Vice President of Advocacy and Policy at World Relief. And she and a few other leaders in our Kansas City community will just be talking about God's heart for the foreigner, for immigrants. And we have so many in our Kansas City neighborhoods and just giving us a better picture of God's heart for these people groups and how we can be a part of loving our neighbors well. So join us Saturday afternoon, January 8th. More information online. It's free. There is a registration and also childcare available that day as well. Next, I'd like to invite Blaine to come up and join me for a ministry spotlight. Today, we're going to be talking about our student ministries group. So Blaine, if you can tell us a bit about yourself first. Hi, everyone. I'm Blaine. Uh, my wife, Joanna, and I have been coming here for a little over a year now. Uh, and I'm on the welcome team, and I also do students ministries on Wednesdays. So what is student ministries, and who is it for? Yeah, so we believe as a church that the primary discipleship ground for you and your kids is at home. It's between you and your child. But we believe that a really important supplement to that is on Wednesday nights, and it can really hone what they learn at home. It can hone what they learn on Sundays, and we can have a lot of fun while we're at it, too. That's great. And what's student ministries currently up to? So uh, Wednesday night, this Wednesday night, we have our Christmas party. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it's escape room theme. I think Tom Heathcote's going to dress up like elf, yellow tights and everything. Um, but it's going to be a really good time uh, then. And then we're going to restart in January, and we're going to uh, hit the ground running with a lot of new curriculum. Uh, and it's just going to be a really great time for anyone 6th uh, through 12th grade. Great. Thank you, Blaine. Thank you. Let's give Blaine a hand. Uh, I feel like our student ministries team has just really taken off this year. We've got a great group of nine volunteers, and um, I know for myself, in high school was when my personal relationship with the Lord really took a bigger step, and I'm so grateful for these volunteers and those that are willing to pour into our sixth and twelfth graders. If you'd stand with me now for the reading of God's word. Today's passage is Genesis 16, verses 11 through 14. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, 
You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, hello, hello. Uh, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm the campus pastor at our downtown campus of Christ Community, and it's a joy to be with you all today. Again, I got to be with you, I think it was not too long ago, but it's a treat to be with you here this morning in one of my favorite times of year, Christmas. I just, I don't know. Any, oh, I got a woo in there. That's great. Thank you for a couple woos. Others of you kind of just kind of laboriously walk through Christmas. I get it. Everybody's on different places, but I love Christmas way too much. So with that in mind, um, now that you know a little bit more about me, why don't we pray and we'll dive in together, okay? God, we are grateful for your word. It's so important um, for us to just sit and hear it read over us. We trust in this moment as we come in the name of Jesus that indeed you are present. We don't have to ask for you to be present, for you already are. You have been anticipating us, anticipating you, and you are at work even now. So would you give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, hearts that are receptive, minds that are eager to learn, so that our bodies might be more activated in the purposes for your glory. God, we need you. We trust you. Thanks for loving us first and loving us always. Guide us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Well, it was um, a couple weeks ago. I was pretty exhausted. Um, it was a really, really full week. I was really hungry. And it was one of those days, it was one of those weeks, really, where I realized I didn't pack my lunch, and lunch kind of hit. Has anybody else had that experience where you're just like, oh, man, why aren't I a better adult at this point in my life? I should have thought ahead. Well, I thought, okay, you know what? I've got this short moment in between my next meeting, and so I'm going to just scooch out just a little bit from this project and go grab something. So I was walking to one of the restaurants downtown. I'm in line, and like, I'm halfway through the line, and I realize I don't have my wallet. Cool. So I slowly walk back to the downtown campus, kind of Charlie Brown style, you know, uh, with head hanging low instead of high. And because uh, I didn't want to take a chance. What if they didn't have Apple Pay? It's real awkward, you know, all the types of dynamics. Anyway, so I'm walking back. And so I make my way up. If you've been to the new downtown campus, there's like these stairs near the, the entrance that lead up to our offices. So I'm walking up the stairs. And Pastor Ben Beasley, associate pastor of the downtown campus, he sees me walking up the stairs and... Uh, I don't know. I'm just a pretty expressive person. <laughs> I don't know if you picked up on that already or not, um, but uh, how I feel shows up, so I can't hide it. I'm a terrible liar. That has an asset in some ways, but, uh, but I can't hide like even Christmas gifts and things like that from my kids, so my wife tries to get those and not tell me so I don't like spill the beans with my kids. There's a lot of like pros and cons to this. Anyway, I'm walking up the stairs, and uh, Pastor Ben Beasley sees me, and he goes, hey, you okay? I was like, ha-ha. <laughs> You know, that's my coping mechanism. I tend to laugh a lot, even when I'm very exhausted. I was like, yeah, you know, I told him the story. I was waiting in line. I was hungry. He's tired. Yada, yada. And, uh, <clears throat> and he goes, oh, man, let me go get you something to eat. 
And I was like, oh, that's really nice. I'll be fine. I'm going to be fine. I'd already had like this internal dialogue, how I was going to muscle my way through. I was going to be fine. You know, just push your way through, Gabe. And he says, no, Gabe, let me go get you something to eat. I was like, nah, man, we're good. He goes, no, we're not. Let me go get you something to eat. What do you want? So I told him the sandwich I wanted. I told him the place. Um, and he's like, I'll be back. I'll go get it for you. And uh, sure enough, you know, he went and gra- grabbed me the sandwich, and he brought it into my next meeting and just, like, put it there, and he just said, hey. And there it is. Oh. If you're hungry, I apologize already. It is uh, the standard breakfast sandwich at Mildred's, which is not even a block away from the downtown campus, and it is delish, okay? It is satisfying in so many ways. Anyway, so I was eating it while I'm in the middle of this meeting, and I went to him the next day. I went to Ben the next day because he had to jet for another meeting. I just came with tears in my eyes. I had no idea why this meant so much to me. I just told him, I was like, Ben, thank you, man. And he, you know, he gave me this big old bear hug. If you know Ben Beasley, he's a pretty ripped dude, does CrossFit, pretty jacked fella. Um, and he gave me this big old hug, and I was just bawling because he saw me, right? He saw me. He saw me, and he wouldn't, and he wouldn't let me look away. He's like, no, 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 man, you need this. And I was like, no, nah, I'm fine. No, you need this. He saw me where I was, and he did something about that. Now, why do I share this story other than to make you hungry and to teach that she treat this as like a Gabe counseling session? Now, here, here's why. In that short little snippet, this is a window into what every single one of us wants. Every single one of us, we all want to be seen. Every single one of us. We want people to see us when we accomplish something so that they can tell us, well done. We want people to, to see us in our pain as much as we try to cover it up, as much as we try to shift ourselves from it, as much as we try to guard. We want people to see us in our pain so that they can step into it with us. We want people to acknowledge our humanity, right? And as much as we all want to be seen, the reality, and as much as I love Christmas, the reality around Christmas is that around Christmas we feel more overlooked than ever. There's something about the holidays, especially Christmas. Now, I love the institution of Hallmark, okay? It provides a lot of jobs in Kansas City, but there is something about Hallmark movies that just build a small rage within my heart, okay? Just so you know. And I get it, like, all the storylines are the same. There's a lawyer. He comes into town, and the girl from the big city moves back to small town. They hate each other. They're against each other. And then suddenly they fall in love, and when do they get proposed? Christmas Eve! And then there's, like, this gorgeous wedding on Christmas Day, and enemies become friends, and it's like, hooray! It's like Christ came back for their wedding. Um, and whenever I watch that, you know, listen, if you're single, you're like, why don't I have that? And then if you're married, you're like, what happened to us? Like, why? <laughs> right? You know? <laughs> and here's the thing. It, like, it cultivates a deep sense of discontent because it's way too fairy ish Some of you are like, not our marriage. Well, congratulations. Okay? <laughs> <clears throat> and then on top of that, you have, like, posters everywhere with, like, families with kids, like, giving gifts. And if you've been trying to have kids and you can't have kids, it's like kids are everywhere and everybody's happy but you. And then if you see any sort of commercial, it's like friends doing white elephant gifts, like, laughing it off. And if you're lonely and isolated, it only exacerbates that loneliness and that isolation. And even psychologists note that even if you've got a great marriage, you've got great kids, you've got great friendships— because of our expectations around the holidays are so high, you can't help but be slightly disappointed. Slightly. Some of you are like, no, man, I'm good. No, really. I mean, we have so many high expectations for one another. 
then you ask, what's wrong with me? What's, what's going on? Like, why? I should be happy. And then that cultivates all kind of shame because you think I should be happy because I got all these things. I mean, look at that guy over there. He doesn't got nothing. And then here I am. I got everything. And yet I still feel that what's wrong with me. And it isolates us further and further. That's, that's a natural outcome of the holidays. And I want to ask you this question. When was the last time you felt overlooked? We all want to be seen, and yet at Christmas we have a tendency more than ever to feel overlooked. When was the last time you felt overlooked? And maybe, and maybe that's you today. I don't know. Maybe you're here and you're wrestling through something. You're asking all sorts of questions, and you feel like nobody really sees you. The reason we're walking through that this morning is because I want you to know that today's text is one of the greatest texts of hope for the overlooked and the ignored. Today's text is an extraordinary word of hope. And as we continue through our series, we've been walking through, if you've been with us, uh, a series on the names of God, the names that portray who he is. I mean, there's something powerful in a name. But today, someone who gives God a name is one of the people, one of the, one of the people throughout history who's one of the most overlooked people in all of history. And what's so astounding, this is important, she is one of the first and only human beings to actually give God a name that he keeps. And he records it in scripture and he says, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> Let's go with that. And so today we find in the name that this person gives to God, powerful comfort to combat even the deepest of loneliness, isolation, and the feeling of being invisible. So let's take a look together, shall we? Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 16, the 16th chapter, right? Okay, so here we go. Let's look at verse 1 together. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. So right out the gate, we get an introduction to the three characters in our primary text this morning. You've got Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham. I call him Abe because I do. Secondly, we see that Sarai, her name is later changed to Sarah. So if you know anything about your biblical narrative, you know these two characters are really pivotal. But then we also meet an Egyptian servant named Hagar. And I want to make no mistake, the main character in Genesis chapter 16 is not Abram, it is not Sarai, it is this Egyptian servant, Hagar. Now, we don't know a ton about Hagar. There are certain things we don't know. Like, we don't know how old she is. We know she's relatively younger. We don't know how she became enslaved. We just know that she is from Egypt and she is enslaved. Now, if you were to go back through the book of Genesis, you could follow the storyline and see that there was a great famine in the land. And Abram and Sarai, they go down to Egypt because there's food there. And there's a whole lot of wonky stuff that goes on down in Egypt that I'm not going to talk through today. But eventually, the Egyptian leaders are like, hey, let's give them some gifts and send them on their way. And amidst those gifts, there's a really good chance that they gave them servants. And if they didn't give them servants, there's a good chance that this is where Abram and Sarai actually procured different servants and probably procured Hagar. Now, I want to lay out this picture for you because at first, what we see is that Hagar is in her culture. This is important. She's in Egypt. She's at least around norms that she understands in a place that speaks her language and possibly even in gaps throughout the day she could see friends and family. 
But as soon as the famine was over, where do Abram and Sarai go? They go back to the land that God has promised them. And so they take Hagar with them. And now she goes to a culture she doesn't know and a place that does not speak her language as a foreigner, speaking of Jenny Yang coming, and in a context that's separated from all the relationships she knew growing up. Imagine how overlooked she felt just in that transition alone. But things are going to get a lot worse because her master tells her, hey, you're going to marry my husband. Okay, this ought to be good. Look at me. Chapter 16, verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and maybe that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, there's all kinds of wrong happening in this verse, okay, to be very clear. What's really important to also note is that Abram is called a friend of God, and he does some pretty dastardly stuff that God has no frame of reference of approval for, okay? Which is a good reminder that when we read these characters, we don't see them explicitly always as models to follow after, but we actually see God's grace on display in the people he uses again and again and again, which gives us all a lot of hope, doesn't it? But right here we see that Sarai, she's longed to have children, but she couldn't. She longed to have a child to call her own. And some of you may be in that space today. Now, I want to say that the journey through infertility is always a heavy one. And I'm going to say a statement that does not mean to minimize the pain you experience today, if that is your story, but to also communicate the intensity of Sarai's pain in this particular point in time. In the ancient Near East, the primary good a woman could bring into a tribal community was to bear children, specifically an heir. You see, they weren't described as someone who was wrestling through infertility. They were defined in their identity as someone who is barren. There is great weight around this. And Sarai feeling the pain of all this. And I want you to really feel the accentuated nature of her pain. Because go back a couple chapters, and you see that suddenly her husband, Abram, walks in the door. And she's like, you know what? And Abram says to Sarai, God came to me, the creator God. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he's, he knows that we've been trying to have kids, and we haven't been able to have kids. And he said, if you follow me, Abram, I'll give you a kid. This is like the chief good in their culture. He says, if you follow me, I will give you an offspring. And not just any offspring, I'll give you a land, an offspring, way beyond than you can count. And so on these experiences go. And you can see just Sarai not experiencing this intimate interconnection with God herself, but having it mediated through Abram and seeing the excitement in his eyes and longing for what he's saying to be true. And if it is true, you'll go anywhere. Because your heart aches for that. Now, at this point in the story, in Genesis 16, this is 10 years after they've left their hometown, left their family, left everything they knew. That's 120 months of disappointment. Continuing to wait, nothing. At this point, she's 75 years old. And if it was a pipe dream to have kids before... Now it feels like it's absolutely absurd. And so all these questions start rolling around in Sarai's mind. You can just imagine, and in her desperation, she goes to try to take things into her own hands. 
Now, what we see on display in verse 2 was a really common practice in the ancient Near East. That is in no way, shape, or form to normalize it, but to communicate that it was a common, culturally accepted practice where a master would give to her husband her servant, if she was unable to have children, this was an ancient form of surrogacy where that servant would have a child and then the child that that servant would have would now be the child from the main wife in the community, okay? Really common. Now, once again, what we don't see in here is God's like, hey, good job. Um, if actually you read across the pages of Genesis, you see that God continues to reveal that any form of polyamory or polygamy so polygamy, multiple spouses, polyamory, multiple partners, any of that is actually discussed before God. And actually, Genesis never really comes out and says, hey, this is terrible. It's a very Jewish way of going about indirectly. It's like, hey, whenever it happens, what happens? Chaos, destruction, and pain. Do you want that? No, I didn't think so. Oi, you know, it's like, hey, you know, look at Genesis. It's a huge, brilliant argument. Don't do this. If you don't want to believe me, just read the stories every time it happens. Now back to the story. <laughs> Actually, before that, I just want to say as an aside, it's a good reminder that just because something in our culture is celebrated, that doesn't mean that it ultimately ends up for your good. And it's easy for us to look back at Abe and Sarai and say, oh, what idiots. It is. And you may not say it that way, but you feel it. But the reality is every single person, no matter your political persuasion, no matter where you are in your marital status, no matter, we all do this. We look at something that's common in culture, we baptize it and say, that's what the Lord wants. And then it brings destruction and we're surprised. Beware. Now back to the story. Okay, so what we see actually <laughs> starts off as a terrible idea, continues to unravel. Once again, a really common cultural idea, but not a good idea anyway. So Sarai, she says, hey, Abe, take... Uh, my servant to be your wife. And then what does Abe say? Does Abe say, hey, you know what? I actually talked with God and God promised that he would bring this child through us, not through Hagar. No, he didn't say any of that. He just creepily goes along with the whole deal. And when we get to verses three and four, this is what we read. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And she conceived. Now, do you realize how of an impossible situation Hagar was put in? Now, there's a, another dynamic that's not easily discerned through our English translation. The word wife there, that Hagar is described as wife, that's actually the same word used for Sarai. And there was a much more common way of talking about someone who's merely in a surrogacy kind of role. That was to call them a, and it's not, I mean, it's a heavy word, but it's an important word, concubine. But that's not what Hagar's called. There's now an equalizing of positional authority within the home. She is now a co-equal wife, and she's now bringing forth a child. Just imagine how this was supposed to go down, okay? Older guy with an older wife try to have kids. They can't have kids. So older wife says, have a new younger wife. And then so older guy marries new younger wife, and then on wedding night gets her preggers, and now brings forth the child that both older wife and older guy really, 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 really wanted. How is, I mean, how is that going to not play out in like a soap opera, right? This feels like extraordinarily clear-cut and dynamic on just how painful this was all set up to be. And yet, 
Hagar does everything that Sarai asks. Everything. She didn't ask for this. She didn't ask to be a slave. She didn't ask to marry her master's husband. She didn't ask to go forth and try to have, have a child. And yet she does everything they ask. And then Sarai gets enraged at her. And then Sarai goes and she talks to Abe. And I like the way that the New Living Translation captures verse 7 best. And it reads like this. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms. But now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. So is now the time for Abe to show up and kind of step up and instead say, hey, you know what? I've got these two wives now. I'm going to play peacemaker and bring them together. And I'm going to, or at the very least, stand up and step forward for my second wife and this new child that's coming. Does he do any of that to help bring peace, reconciliation, shalom, hope, protection for the vulnerable? No, he doesn't do anything of that sort. Instead, he's just incredibly passive. Look with me here at verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her. And she fled. Speaking of Hagar, she fled from her. And you're like, come on, Abe. <laughs> come on, Sarai. Like this, this is not to say, hey, this is the way you ought to do this. We are seeing the messiness and the brokenness of Abram and Sarai on display. These people of faith and yet deeply engaging in decisions of brokenness that are leading to even deeper pain and heartache. And can you imagine Hagar once again? Now, after all of this, being isolated from her culture, from her family, from a place that no longer speaks her language, doing what her master said to do, and now engaging in this weird marriage relationship with this older guy, and now actually bringing forth the child that they said they wanted, and now every day she's experiencing physical, emotional, spiritual abuse. She's done everything. And so what does she do? We read that she does what she only feels like she can do left. She runs. And actually in the text later, it says she's on the path to Shur. That is the path back to Egypt. She's going back home. And listen, being a single mom, growing up in a household with a single mom, it's always been hard. And it, and it always is. But especially in this culture, in this dynamic, as a runaway slave... A single mom without the appropriate resources in the middle of the desert? This is a death wish. This is the picture of desperation. And now we find ourselves at the point in the text that was read for us earlier. Here, Hagar has never been more alone, never been more overlooked than in this moment. And some of you, even as you're hearing this story, the details may not be exactly the same, but the feelings sure do line up with your life and Hagar's. And you're asking, where is God in all this? Like, when is he going to show up? When is he actually going to do something to bring about remedy or redemption? Where are you, God? Seems like everybody's going about their life. But here's Hagar all alone. And what we come to find is that God has his eyes on Hagar and has had his eyes on Hagar this whole time. Look with me, chapter 16, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, 
the spring on the way to Shur. Think about Hagar in this moment. She's finally made it to a well. She's gotten this far. And she gets just enough to quench her thirst. And she sits down with her hands around her stomach, looking out at the wilderness, wondering, is this it? What if I'm caught? What is it going to mean for the life of this child within me? Where do I go from here? And then suddenly she sees something off in the distance. And then it comes a little closer and you realize, she realizes it's a man, which is not a comforting thought. As a single mom in the middle of the wilderness, all alone, and a runaway slave. And as he gets closer, she realizes he looks different than any man she's ever seen. The text calls this character the angel of the Lord. Now, if you look across the biblical text, this character, the angel of the Lord, is more than just one of the myriad of angels in the hosts of God's glorious heavenly realm. Instead, there's something unique about this title, the angel of the Lord, that actually communicates God's presence himself. There are later texts where the angel actually receives worship, which are like, oh wait, every other angel who does that, they're like, no, worship God, but instead this one does. So in some way, theologians have wrestled through this to see this as God uniquely present among his people. And even other theologians go so far as to say that this is the pre-incarnate Christ come to walk among his people and to meet them. And you know what's fascinating about this, this angel of the Lord? I have a lot of different frameworks as to why the angel of the Lord should have shown up to Abe. I've got a lot of different frameworks for why the angel of the Lord even should have shown up to Sarai. But instead, the first time this character makes appearance, who does he go to? Hagar. Whom Jesus would later call the least of these. Isn't it fascinating, the beauty of our God, that he constantly surprises us with who he says gets his time and who he pursues and who he knows needs to have radical intervention and experience his presence in a palpable way. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New, if we have the eyes to see and are willing to see his grace, his mercy, his kindness, especially to the most vulnerable. So when this angel of the Lord, when he approaches Hagar, how does he approach her? He approaches her with questions, and he calls her by name. He doesn't come making demands, but he comes asking questions, inviting intimacy, right? You know, whenever you're in a conversation with somebody and they start sharing about their life, instantly you start to feel more connected to one another, right? So he's asking her questions, inviting her into that intimacy, and then he calls her by name. And Bruce Walkie, a famed Old Testament scholar, he writes this. This is the only known instance in ancient Near Eastern literature where the deity addresses a woman by name. I want you to look at that quote because it doesn't just say the only time in the Old Testament. It says the only time in ancient Near Eastern literature from all the other comparative religious studies we have out there, of all the other texts that we have out there, this is the only time. And when God addresses her, he addresses her by name. When nobody else sees her, he's like, I see you so well, I know your name before you even say it. That's how astounding our God is. And he says, where are you coming from and where are you going? Which, by the way, I can't help but think of Cotton Eye Joe, but that's just me. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Sorry. That's neither here nor there, and I will not say it in second service, but it is on the live stream. <laughs> but here's what I can't fathom. Here's what I cannot fathom. It's what God says to her next. 
Because what does he say? He says, go back. Go back to Abram. Go back to Sarai. Go back to the very difficult situation you're running from. I know I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be able to, you know, clarify and defend. But I got to be honest with you, it makes my stomach turn. The first time I was reading, I was like, that's the option? That's the choice? And even I can go back and think through, like, the, the real options that she had before her. And frankly, it's probably her best chance of survival is to go back there when you think about the options available to her. Sure, sure, sure. But it still makes my stomach turn. I want God to provide something miraculous and different. Don't you? If you're reading this, if you're honest with yourself, it's a tough pill to swallow. And I want to be very clear. There are moments where God invites us to walk through trials we would have never chosen for ourselves. We were just in the book of James not too long ago, right? Count it all joy. <laughs> what? When you, when you encounter trials? James, what are you smoking, my friend? Like, that is crazy. If we're honest with ourselves, that's what we feel. Sometimes God invites us, he even calls us back into moments of brokenness or pain or hardship. But I also want to be very clear when we come to this text, because it is narrative, to read our Bibles well. This is not a prescriptive text, meaning you don't go back to this narrative and now find a proof text as a command for you to stay in an abusive relationship. That is not what this text is now universally teaching everybody who's in a really difficult or hard situation. It is a descriptive scenario where we do see the unchanging character of our God, but in a very specific point in time, and how that worked out specifically for Hagar. Do you see? So it is descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive for your context. So I don't want anybody to walk out of here to either see God approving what Abe and Sarai was doing as like appropriate, and him sending her back was a way of him saying, see, they were right and you were wrong. That's not what we actually see in the text. But there's no way around it. God, who reveals himself as endlessly compassionate and all merciful, tells her to go back. And she's speechless, as rightly she should be. And actually, we see this on, on, on display in the narrative, okay? If you look at verses 9, 10, and 11, there's something that's really weird that's happening here because again and again, we get the introduction of the angel of the Lord said, and the angel of the Lord said, and the angel of the Lord said. Everybody knows when you write out narrative or even dialogue, you just introduce the person who's speaking and you let them keep going. And they're hand copying this. This is a great time to edit. <laughs> it's like, we could save some time at the carpal tunnel, you know. But instead, theologians note that the repetition is meant to help you feel the dialogical nature of this. The angel of the Lord said this, and she's got nothing to say. The angel of the Lord said this, and she's got nothing to say. The angel of the Lord said this, and she's got nothing to say. She's speechless. And it's only after she hears God's promise towards her son that she's willing to speak again. It's only after God says, I see your son, I will protect him, and I'm going to do something astounding through that boy. And you can just see the compassion of a mom just bubble up with her. Because frankly, listen, at that moment, everything changes for Hagar. Not her circumstances. Notice that. She's still going to go back into a painful situation. But she holds on to the promise that God is going to take care of her son. That's what the text is communicating. A promise anchored 
and her son. And he will be called, the angel says, Ishmael, which means what? God hears. He's seen you. He's heard your cry. Such that when she went out into the desert, she was overlooked, she was abandoned, and she was afraid. But after she had this extraordinary encounter with the living God, she returns now having been seen, having been heard, and holding fast to the promises of God for her son. And her response, I think the NIV captures this best in chapter 6, verse 13, where it reads, She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. I love how the NIV goes that one step further in the translation of the Hebrew to really emphasize what the Hebrew is communicating. This very personal, intimate inter- interaction with the, God, with, with the God who sees her. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Not just sees broadly, but it's me she's, that, that this God sees. And that impact, that experience, it empowers her to go back. And to be clear, it is not an easy return. There is no Mr. Bluebird on my shoulder. Like, there's no bluebirds, okay? It's pain. It's heartache. But she goes back because this God saw her, and she saw him seeing her. And isn't it fascinating that here we are thousands of years later, and millions upon millions of people saw what she thought no one would ever see. We get to join in on seeing what she thought was overlooked. And we know her name, Hagar. And the name she gave to God. The God who sees me. A foreigner, enslaved, rejected, and abused. And God says, that's the name I'm going to hold on. And I'm going to anchor it in my scriptures such that everywhere that people hear of me, they're going to know this about me through Hagar. So here's one thing I want us to walk away from this brilliant story, painful as it may be, when we understand the name of this God who sees me. And it's this. One thing we can walk away with, every single one of us. God sees you. He sees you. Always. There's like no point where God's clocking out and he's like, oh man, that happened during my break. Why don't you fill me in? There's no point where God is disengaged from your life. He sees you, whether you're struggling along his path or you're lost along your own. There's no part of your life that is so scandalous that God ejects. He always, always, always stays in the room and walks with you through it all. That's who he is. God sees you. And the reality is, this is why this is such a powerful story, is if he sees Hagar... The one that was most invisible, most overlooked in her culture, you can guarantee he sees you. Because while, yes, this is a unique point in time, in this passage, we are are called to expect what she was surprised by. That's why we have it recorded in Scripture. We are are to, to expect God to be this for us, in us, around us, when Hagar was surprised by it. Because the God that we see here never changes. Do you believe that? If he never changes, when you feel most overlooked, that's when he's seeing you the most clearly. Don't ever forget that. And so if you're here today and you're wrestling through 
infertility. You've tried every single pathway you can think of. You've been going on this for years. This was as part of my wife's and, and my journey for a while. I want you to know that God sees you in that. If you're here today and you have just enduring physical or psychological pain that just goes on under the surface, and you've, you've talked about it with a few people, but you always feel like, mate, you're always worried about all the labels that come with really being transparent about the pain that you're experiencing. Whatever there might be going on under the surface, that pain, that heartache, I want you to know that God sees that. He sees you. Whether it's your cultural background, your ethnicity, your orientation, whether it's your marital status, God sees you. If you're a new parent and you don't know what to do, if you've moved to this community and you don't have the relational dynamics yet and you feel utterly alone, God sees you. If you have a prison record and you've wrestled to find a new job in a different place along the way and people consistently view you through the failures of the past rather than the, the prosper, prosper, oh man, goodness gracious, the opportunities of the present, don't see me in the failures of my stutter, right? God sees you. He sees you, whatever it is you're wrestling through. And I don't know about you, but that just never gets old. <laughs> because listen, I can know facts, but facts are different than feelings, aren't they? What, we, sometimes in the church we downplay feelings. But here's what, where we miss with that. Feelings are helpful because they reveal what we actually believe. They reveal what we actually believe or what we're hoping in. Feelings are helpful to clarify what's going on within us. But they aren't facts. And the reality is that Hagar felt overlooked. There's no doubt about it in her responses and the dynamics in which she's experienced. But the fact is, is that God saw her. So even if you don't feel like God sees you today, that doesn't change the fact that he does. And I want to make this real personal for each and every one of us. There's power in kind of naming sometimes where we feel overlooked and naming where we're coming from or where we feel like we're called to go. And so I want you to answer this question for me. Where do you feel overlooked? Where do you feel overlooked? What part of your life feels overlooked by God? Maybe it's an area of deep pain and heartache and you don't know where to go from here. Well, here's where you go with these feelings. When you feel overlooked, look to the God who sees you. When you feel overlooked, look to the God who sees you. Remember, if God saw Hagar, then there is no doubt in my mind he sees us. There was no one more overlooked than Hagar. Go back again to chapter 16, verse 13 there in the NIV. What does she say when she experienced? She says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Have you had that experience with whatever you feel overlooked in? And here's what I want you to do. There's power in writing this stuff out. So if you've got the formed life journal or you've got your Bible or a note sheet or whatever, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fill in this blank for me. God sees me in my depression. God sees me in my heartache. God sees me in my financial instability. God sees me in my anger. God sees me in my frustration. God sees me in my struggling marriage. Write it out because you need to understand that's the fact. And sometimes seeing the words written out will speak back to our hearts. We don't need to over-spiritualize or make ourselves think, you know, I'll just think about it. No, we need to write stuff out sometimes. And see it proclaimed back over us. 
We all want to be seen. And this is so crucial. And here's why. This is the promise we have. When you trust God sees you, you can rest in his work for you. We see three people in here that are extremely restless, right? We see Sarai. She abuses her power because she can't trust that God's going to do what he said he was going to do anymore. Abram, he's paralyzed when he should be acting. And so is restless over what God is indeed going to do. And then with Hagar, she runs from her pain. You see, when we actually trust that God sees us, God meets us with this calm confidence. Some say it's a peace that passes understanding, right? He meets us there, not to back away from trials, but actually to have the confidence to walk through them. Or Ephesians 2.10, to walk in the good works that the Lord has laid out for us to engage. And to be clear, I mean, this is where the prophet of Isaiah is so helpful. He consistently tells us, right, your ways are not his ways. Your thoughts are not his thoughts. So it might not be your timeline. It may not look the way you hope it would. You may, it may not come when you thought it would come. But God's working, and sometimes it looks like a sandwich. <laughs> if we have the eyes to see, super simple, a sandwich. When I recognize and I see within my brother that he sees me, and then it points me back to the God who's brought us together. And I can taste and see that the Lord is good, pun intended. But in other times, it's not so simple. I mean, where are we at in Christmas? When God looked down on his world, yes, he sees us individually, but he also sees globally and even across time. And as he looked down on his world, what did he do? He sent an angel to go to another young woman. And this angel also went to this young woman and said, you're going to have a son. And this angel also gave this woman's child a name. We see back in Genesis, his name is Ishmael, God hears. But here it's Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. And also, just like Hagar's son is promised that everybody's hand will be against him. Same with Mary's son. Everybody's hand will be against him. And it will be at the cross. And in the same way that Hagar was an outcast, we see that Mary now, listen, this is important for some of us to hear. When God showed up in Mary's life, he screwed it up. She had this scandal around having a child from someone that's not her husband the rest of her life. That was the perception. In an honor-shame society, and we see this later on even in Jesus' ministry where the Pharisees are like, who's your daddy? The scandal that is now connected with Mary the rest of her life because God showed up. And yet Mary knew that God saw her. And you better believe, growing up in a Jewish home, she knew Hagar's story. And she held also her arms around her stomach, what? Holding fast to the promises that God made about her son. The same way that Hagar held fast to the promises that God made for her son. Listen, God is creative, but sometimes he's got patterns, you know? And he just brilliantly is pursuing his people. And if there's one thing we can get out of Advent, it's this. It's that God sees us. He sees you. And the reason his name is, he is the God who sees me, is because he does. Always. Amen? Let's pray. God, I got to be honest. When I hear that you see me, I have both a mixture of joy and terror <laughs> because I know me. 
But then that terror is put to rest when I remember that this same son whose every hand was to be against went to the cross and died for me, paying for all my sins, such that when you see me, you see Jesus. So today, wherever any one of us is at this morning, we pray, Lord, I pray that you would communicate to their hearts that they are seen, that they are loved, that they are pursued, and that we would rest in your grace and trust that when you see us, it means good for us. We trust you for that. We lean into that. Cultivate that calm confidence in each one of us in the trials you've called us to walk through. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we continue to worship together? Oh 
And so together, as we remember Christ come and a babe, the son of Mary, let us declare together what it is we believe around our triune God. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And so for those who can declare that with confidence and have experienced the grace of the gospel, the Lord's Supper is made available to us, a place where the gospel is proclaimed to our senses of taste, touch, and smell, and a whole embodied experience. We are nourished by the gospel afresh to rest in his grace. But before we come, let us hear what has been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're willing and ready to come, we've got a communion station up front, over there to the right. If you'd rather engage in self-service, there's also that over to my left, some of your right over that way. And you'll gather in groups of four to six and partake and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's do that together. Mm -hmm. 